This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Quarter's first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. I started using Quarter and I've never looked back. You can think of Quarter as the Spotify for all investor conference calls that you can think of. You can type in the ticker of whatever company you want, say it's Etsy, and you can get a list of all of their recent earnings calls and inside the earnings calls, you can listen and click the PDF and it'll show you investor presentations or prepared remarks that you can read alongside listening. The best part is, is you can choose the speeds. You can have 1x, 1.2, 1.5, which is my favorite. And you can star companies, make them your favorites, and you'll get notifications for new conference calls and they'll be right at the top of your app. So there's five key points to remember about Quarter. First, it's 100% free. They include companies from 12 markets and plan to add more over the, over the coming year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can do in the app, and they have a lot more in store. So check them out on wherever app store you have. It's Q-U-A-R-T-R. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword Metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. This week, I have Pink Polo Shorts on the podcast. Pink is one of the anonymous accounts that I've wanted to get on for a while. And I'm kind of in this theme of getting anonymous accounts on the podcast. And who better than Pink Polo Shorts? Uh, we're going to talk about real estate investing, which is um, Polo's main main gig, as well as some private market stuff and some other anonymous things that he's doing on Twitter and just kind of that whole anonymous Twitter rabbit hole that we'll go down. So this is going to be a great conversation. If you're interested in real estate investing, definitely tune in. If you're not, I still would listen because there's a lot of applications that you can take from real estate investing and transpose them on other areas like public markets. So uh, Polo, before we get going, um, first I have to apologize for there's they're cutting a tree down in my backyard. So, um, you know, if you can hear that, I apologize. But then second, why the name Pink Polo Shorts? So I, I grew up in the Mid-Atlantic and I, you know, had you know, two polo shirts on, popped the collars, wore a lot of vineyard vines. Uh, you know, I grew up with the people um, who founded Tucker Nuck. <laughs> if you're from DC, you probably know that. So grew up wearing a lot of uh, polo shorts and I just gravitated towards pink, not even salmon. That's a common misconception. Salmon is different from the pink, the pink ones. Oh man, I love it. I love it. Not not salmon, but pink. Um, and yeah. your your profile picture is Ted Lasso, I believe. Last time I checked, um, you a big Ted yeah, Lasso. Yeah, I'm thinking fan. about changing that because it's been that for a year. Yeah, I love I like Ted Lasso. Season one I thought was better than season two, but uh, it, you know I think especially in season one there was a lot of really uh, 
good lessons there I thought were applicable to uh, investing in life, especially during the very dark days of the pandemic uh, pre-vaccine. My favorite lesson or just even phrase from that show was uh, when Ted was talking to Sam or maybe it was another teammate and he said, what's the best or, you know, best uh, animal yeah, yeah. out there? And it's goldfish, you know, t- 10 yeah. second memory, be a goldfish. That's like the perfect uh, perfect animal to be in markets. Like if you, if you, if you've got a 10 second memory, at least for like a lot of things, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll do pretty well. Totally agree. So what, uh, what got you started in real estate and was that kind of like your first, um, you know, career path you came out of college or wherever and you said, you know what, I want to do real estate. This is what I'm passionate about. Or how did you end up there? Oh, no, definitely not. I, uh, I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player uh, growing up, and I did it for a little bit after college, but I was a decidedly mediocre, uh, mediocre player in the professional ranks. So I retired in my early 20s and needed to get a real job. And it was, you know, I was off cycle. I didn't have any internships. And like, sounds bad, but real estate was kind of the lowest hanging fruit. Like I interviewed with a bunch of different firms and I said they're like you have no experience but you played sports uh, so it means you ostensibly can work hard and be part of a team and real estate at the end of the day is not you know trading options it's pretty simple in concept uh, harder in practice so uh, my first job was at a master plan community developer and then uh, from there I went on to a couple of institutions and have been working for myself uh, for the last four or five years. What position did you play in baseball? Uh, I was a pitcher. I was a relief pitcher. Okay. So how how high Very, did you get? How high did you get in the majors? Was it double A, triple A? No, I didn't even make it that far. I made it to short season A ball, okay. and that was I, I, that was like my Peter principle. That was about as high as I was going to go. And uh, I sort of saw the. I played independent ball for a year after I got released, and I sort of saw the writing on the wall. I could have played another probably four or five years in independent ball and then gotten out in 28 and it just would have made the next phase of my life much more difficult and so figured you know I could give it I got a little bit of closure and I could sort of make a clean break and, and move on um, at an age where I was still young enough to do entry-level stuff which was an issue that some of my compatriots and the minors have run into um, hmm. that I've seen the last few years. Were you surprised at how hard it was to progress in baseball like to go from single a to double a to triple a because from an outsider's perspective looking in like i want to know how good you have to be to play in like the majors from someone like your perspective like where you're probably highly touted highly recruited and yet there was still this like you know competitive gap yeah it's 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 really a game of inches and i think that's the case almost with any professional sport but, but I think what a lot of people don't understand is that if you're playing in the minors, you know, you've got 18 people on the field um, and probably in any given game, 17 of those people are just there. So the one other guy who's actually going to be in the big leagues can get reps. Like that's really why you're there. You I mean, you're cannon fodder for lack of a better word. Like it didn't really matter if I did well or I got on the field. I was there just to give the you know prospect on the other side reps uh, hitting. Um, or, you know, we were basically there so that or our shortstop could have a game and uh, practice fielding. So you have to consistently get better. And I think that's kind of another misnomer. It's like when you're, no one is good enough when they get drafted to go straight to the big leagues. Like, you know, 
there's a handful of people in the last 10 years who've done that. You have to get better every year. And a lot of times folks who you think are going to progress a certain way don't. Um, and other times people who you think were not going to progress do. So I played with a 22nd round guy who's had a 10 year career in the big leagues because he just kept getting better. And, you know, I didn't get better. And so now I'm here, you know, uh, uh, talking to you. So I guess uh, that that's its own reward. <laughs> It makes me think of the luck versus skill debate that Michael Mobison likes to have. And and I guess at that yeah. level, when you say game of inches, it's like, you know, maybe the skill and just to kind of equate this for like a Madden rating to put on a player. So maybe someone's like 87 and, and someone else is an 85. But over time, that two percentage point difference compounds exponentially to then that guy that was 87, you you know, someone else was an 85 over five years. That could be the difference between getting a 10 year you know, $120 million contract versus, you know, not having that. Yeah. And then I think the other thing too, is it's not about physical abilities. So you can go to any minor league game. You'll see pitchers who throw just as hard as guys in the big leagues who have just as good breaking stuff. You can go watch batting practice. You'll see guys hit balls out of the stadium. Guys are really fast, but it's doing it every day and then having your body be able to hold up for 162 games. Um, So it's not even about like, who's the best on any given day it's who can be the best at the, their best every day for a very long period of time and that's that's really hard and it's it's a lot of it's mental mental too because you know there's no off days and you're there seven days a week for six months and it's very 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 difficult to stay focused for that long makes you wonder how cal ripkin beat that game's consecutive record I know, I I know. I grew up in the D.C. area. I'm still mad at my parents for not getting tickets to the game in 1994. Uh, A lot of kids from my class went. I'm I'm still holding a grudge. Yeah. (laughs) So you go from you go from baseball, um, you know, trying to trying to go into the majors. And now you're 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 doing some, you know, intro level real estate stuff. At what point do you start? either developing some sort of knack for this and saying, you know what, I might actually have some skill here. And what were some of the first maybe big steps you took to bet on yourself in that, in that arena? Sure. So I, I start off in master plan community development. And for those who don't know, that's basically we would buy raw pieces of land, entitle them or upzone them, and then work on finishing the lots. That means getting utilities, uh, to all of the finished lots, to, to first of all, dividing them into lots, getting utilities there, getting everything set up and then selling the land to a home builder. Um, and, you know, it's very cliche because if you if you ask anyone when they're interviewing for real estate, it's like, why do you want to be in real estate? It's tangible, I can change an asset. But there is really something to that. And especially when you start doing tours of things that your company has done, um, it, it's, it's pretty powerful. And I didn't, I mean, talk about having a knack for it again, like real estate's not that hard. You like want to find places that have good demographics, that real estate that is well located, easy access to transit, near good housing, like that stuff's all pretty simple. The hard part is actually doing it. Um, Like anyone can underwrite in a spreadsheet and, you know, the model and the underwriting isn't the special sauce. The special sauce is taking that into an asset and delivering what you said you were going to do and delivering returns. So give me an example of that of that special sauce where it's taking an asset and going from, we'll use the term, you know, spreadsheet to ground floor and actually building the thing, whether it's from your first job or from, from something else after that. Sure. So we, at my first job, we bought a piece of land and this is before my, uh, the acquisition was done before I got there, but 
bought a piece of land uh, post-recession out of bankruptcy and turned it into 4,000 homes. And it was really creatively done. It was a tricky piece of land in that there was a lot of farms there. There was a lot of opposition to increased density. And so the my old boss, very, I thought, creatively, um, did an agreement to preserve a bunch of the farmland, but then use the farmland as marketing for the homes. So it was like a very farm to table type community. And that was a big, uh, they got a great chef to come in and worked at the community center. They built all the amenities first, then the homes, which is a mistake you see a lot where people build the homes before the amenity package. And it worked out great and the deal absolutely crushed. Um, and to me, that was like a very, interesting um, example of using something that's going against you and then using it as marketing to make the project work. At what point did you start capturing or generating your own deal flow for your first company or, or maybe striking it out and, and, and suggesting a project that was either financed and then went well or financed and went poorly. I mean, I know you're smiling, so maybe, maybe there's a fun story back there. Yeah. So when I started, I like barely, I couldn't open Excel. I didn't study econ. I, you know, it was going to be a baseball, I was a poli-sci major and I just, I could write a paper in one night and you had to do that twice a semester. It seemed that was pretty easy. And I basically used my first job as a crash course to learn about investing. And so I read, I, I met some guys at a networking event and I said, Hey, you need to give me like a real estate, um, give me a bibliography. Like I need to, I need to read, like read a bunch of books. Cause I don't know anything. And so I read like the Lineman stuff, the real estate game, all those sort of basic things. And then I was talking with my dad and he said, you know, the best thing you can do is like actually do a deal and you'll, he's like, you'll lose all your money, but you didn't get an, you, you didn't major in real estate or major in econ or anything. So this will be your education. And so I was very fortunate and I had a little bit of a uh, little bit of money from my grandmother. And I just said, I'm going to buy a common house hack something and I'm going to buy a condo. And this is while I'm working at my first shop. I've been there, I think less than six months. So I buy this condo. I literally didn't know how to calculate a mortgage payment. I, when I got pre, I, I got pre I qualified after I made the offer. And I remember sitting on the phone with my banker being like, Oh God, like how much is this mortgage going to be? Can I actually afford this? And <laughs> Um, don't do that. Not investing advice. Um, so we, I ended up buying this thing. I renovated one of the bathrooms. Um, I rented out the other, there's a two bedroom. I rented out the other bedroom and that covered about 75% of the mortgage. And then I lived in this unit and that turned out pretty well. And then while uh, I was still working at this first job, I did another unit where, uh, we bought it, did more of a gut renovation. And this had a really nice roof deck. And so that was privately deeded. And it was a, it was a townhouse and it was a top floor. So and it was right near a bunch of, uh, in the city I lived in, it was near the central business district. There was a bunch of private equity firms. And so I thought, okay, there's gonna be demand for this. It's sort of a great place for being in your twenties. You can walk to these two major employment centers. Um, so I renovated that, uh, learned a little tricky lesson because the family that owned the, largest unit on the ground floor. Um, they made my construction crew stop several times. So I got really good at the sound ordinance and I would come measure the actual ordinance and be like, we're below the city level that requires, wow. requires us to quiet down. <laughs> and what you learn is you think, okay, I'm right. I have this. And I remember the guy who owned the house was like, dude, you're, th you, this is a house. Like you can't do this. Like, I don't care what the ordinance says. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so our construction took longer, but we ended up renting it out. And those two things went well. And as I progressed in my career, I just rented them out and kind of set it and forget it. So I ended up being the head of the condo association for that second one, which was another story for another time. Um, don't ever do that. Um, and so, you know, when I was working in private equity at like, you know, two in the morning, like four years later, I was like, let's check on Zillow, see what these things are worth. And this dumb luck had done very well on them. And so I sold one, refinanced the other, and then that was a seed capital to go out on my own. That's awesome. And you mentioned at that point that you were working in, in private equity. So what was your role there? I mean, I, I assume it was more, maybe some real estate stuff just within private equity or walk us, walk us through what you did there. Yeah, so I worked, at, I worked at two of the, two of the mega funds, I guess you would call them okay. the parlance on, you know, wall street oasis or <laughs> whatever the websites are. And I, th I did asset management and acquisitions. And so for those who don't know, in private equity, there's sort of two distinct camps. Well, there's three really with capital markets, but there's acquisitions and asset management. So the acquisitions team will underwrite a deal, do all the legwork up front. Um, they put together the model, the investment committee memo. They work with capital markets to get that and then close the deal and then hand it off to asset management. And asset management then executes the business plan. So they'll do the renovations, they'll do the releasing. Uh, they'll do any refinance. The acquisitions may come back in for that a little bit, but they basically run the deal. And I know there's sometimes people think, oh, if you in private equity, you buy a deal and then take it to the nuts. That's really not often the case. Um, so I got into private equity through asset management, which is considered less prestigious. But to me, I think it's actually way more important than acquisitions because you can, again, as we talked about earlier, you can say whatever you want on a spreadsheet, but you actually got to, your business plan is only as good as your worst leasing person on site, I like to say. And you kind of learn that. Um, and I think I was really fortunate to come in through asset management because you realize that you're buying, you know, real like companies, you know, in a sense, especially if you're buying a hotel, that's a different story, but even multifamily, you're buying a company and you have people who work for you and they need to be properly motivated. They need to be incentivized. They, you need to make sure they're not stealing from you. Um, and you need to make sure that they're creating a safe place to live because you need your ultimate clients, your residents to be happy and stay. And uh, if they stay, there's less turnover, higher rents, higher NOI, everybody wins. So um, that's, uh, I think it's really important that everyone understands that asset management, I think is almost a better place to start than acquisitions. And then on the acquisition side, it's just, you know, gunning around, buying deals and uh, it's fun and it's more prestigious, but at the end of the day, the returns are really made uh, especially now as the market's gotten more efficient and more capitals come in, they're really made in asset management. Do you have any examples of stories um, or, or deals that maybe went south for you early on? I mean, it sounds like you've had some initial success, but were there any hiccups or any any deals that 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 you might have purchased and they just didn't work out? Maybe the NOIs didn't didn't meet your hurdle rate or something like that? Yeah. So my first deal on my own, I absolutely bricked. Uh, so... <laughs> Is that a is that a technical yeah. term in the real estate market industry? It is, it is, it is. Yeah, I, I think so. And I came in and after doing, I was coming off of being in acquisitions. I did you know, like well over a billion dollars of transactions. I thought I sort of knew how things worked. And what you realize is that if you're doing larger transactions, you're not doing really any of the work. Like you're outsourcing it all to legal, to title, to you know your tax consultant, to your insurance consultant. And when you're doing, you know, a $200 million deal, those costs are de minimis. But if you're doing a $2 million deal, they're not one one hundredth of the cost. Like the legal is still the legal. The 
the tax consultant still is the tax consultant and you're paying all that yourself. And so you end up trying to do a lot of it on your own. And so my first deal, I bought a property that had been renovated. I thought, okay, I like this area. Rents are going to go up and it was 16 units. Um, you know, I, I think we can manage it better. The guy was trying to do some sort of Airbnb strategy. It's like, that's ridiculous. We'll just get in there. Um, you know, we'll, they, they had a waste management contract it didn't make sense. So I, I thought there was some expense reduction and then I liked the area. Uh, didn't really realize that the renovations were done with like, duct tape and bailing wire. Like all the HVACs were installed improperly, like almost from as soon as we closed. You know, we weren't able to hit the rents we thought on the, the highest uh, or the two best units in the property, which trickles all the way down. And, you know, I sort of, you underwrite whatever vacancy percentage, but when you're in a 16 unit building, it's never just going to be 5%, right? If you have two vacant units, you know, that's 14 out of 16 and seven out of eight, like you're over your 5% right there. And if you don't lease, you're not going to lease them in two days, it's going to take a month. And then you factor that in, you know, by the time you have unit turn, all that. And so I think the smaller apartments are just really hard to execute well. And if you're someone who specializes in managing those yourself or you have a great management firm, it can work. But for the most part, I think it's really, really, really tricky to do those unless it's something in like the West Village where, you know, the rents are $6,000 a unit and then you're, you can have sort of on-site management. So when you were doing these deals and, 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 and you were kind of looking at those, were there, were there any mentors in your life at that point that were steering you maybe one way or the other saying, you know, Hey, um, you know, like when you were going through that deal, that, that, that 16 unit, did you have any mentors to fall back and say, you know, Hey, like, what do you think about this? Like anybody to kind of red team your, your process at that point? No, I didn't. And that was really to my, that was my fault. I was pretty arrogant. Like, just coming out of this, I'm like, I worked at one of the best private equity firms. I know what I'm doing. And I didn't. And I got my lunch handed to me. <laughs> um, generated a nice tax loss though. So that worked out okay. But you know, that's you don't want to be you don't want to be generating too many tax losses. <laughs> you and mentioned that that's I think that's, sorry, I was just gonna say, that's a really important point. But now, you know, folks I used to work with who have become friends with and folks I've met through Twitter now. I do have that process. And so I have people look at my underwriting and I have sanity checks before I do things now. And I think it's really been an important part of my process is trying to realize that I'm not that smart and you have to have other people look and make sure that you're doing the right things. You mentioned that when you were looking to buy this, the, the prior owner wanted to do some sort of Airbnb strategy. I know that this house hacking and, and buying properties to turn into Airbnb rentals long and short term is super popular right now. And so from your perspective, from a, you know, kind of someone that's cut their teeth in this, doing, doing multifamily, maybe, you know, larger scale deals. What do you think about the whole long-term Airbnb rental strategy? I think doing it as a business is really, really hard. And, you know, the hotel business is the hardest operationally almost of any real estate asset class because you have to rent it every day and doing that without the infrastructure provided by a brand, the flag of property management group, or I should say a you know, national property management group um, makes it a lot harder. You know, if you're Airbnb at your basement, that's one thing, but if you're trying to create a business on it, that's, I think, really, really difficult. And it's really hard to underwrite 
uh, with any consistency. And I think it also fits in with the heuristic that if people are on TikTok telling you to do some sort of investment, you should probably not do that investment. <laughs> and there's a lot of people on TikTok right now are like, I've amassed, you know, X million dollars of real estate doing Airbnb. Here's how I did it. Swipe down, you know, or swipe up. And yeah, that's, I think it's great that people are learning about stuff like that, but it's, 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 it's so hard. And, you know, the cleaning fees, the management fees, the turnover, the place gets destroyed. It just really eats into your profits. And then it's also really hard to get loans because you don't have any leases. So if you're buying something for cash, sure, maybe, but if you're trying to do it with debt, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now you've mentioned underwriting a few times. I think it's a great point in in our conversation to get a crash course in pink polo shorts underwriting 101. Um, I'm sure it's you know simple to to you and kind of the process is maybe more back of the envelope these days than it was early on. But walk us through. I you know I like to use the phrase soup to nuts. Let's say you step out, you're looking at a property. What are that, you know, what is, what is that routine? Like, what do you look for? And then when you think about underwriting, what's that process? Um, you know, don't be afraid to kind of go into the weeds here. Yeah, sure. So I think using back the envelope, I think it'd be a really dangerous term. And I think something that my old boss really hammered into me is that you have to earn the right to do the back of the envelope and everyone hates on using models but you have to and it doesn't mean that the model is right the model's never right but by building out your own models by doing it cell by cell which takes forever is so annoying but it is the best way to learn how real estate cash flows work um you you build up the mental math ability to do back of the envelope and you earn that right and so if you build 50 models from scratch and you've seen how changing underwriting inputs impacts IRR, peak equity, uh, your profit and your cash flow multiple, then that starts becoming intuitive. And so what you'll see and with even folks in private equity who are high up, like if we're talking about a deal in an office with my old boss, it would be something we wouldn't have, like you'd bring a printout, you'd look through the printout, but it'd be like, okay, this is a you know 100 unit multifamily building, average rents are three grand, Okay, so that's 100 units times three grand, 300 grand a month, 3.6 million a year. It's new property, so the NOI margin is probably you know 60%. So the NOI is this. Uh, at five cap, the value is Y. And you're probably like 15. You're, you're probably going to be within like 10, 15% of like where it trades. Just just doing that, and that's sort of your first cut. And then you go in and you build the model. You figure out like what your financing is, what you can do to the PL. But you know this is a long-winded way of saying like when you go in, you do that first cut kind of like that make sure it makes sense. Then you build out the model. And then the question is, okay, what's the, what's the going in yield? What do I think I can take the yield to? And then at that new yield, do I like the basis? Because I like to say, I tweet this a lot, like real estate, real estate basis is forever, but yield can go away. And if you're buying something and saying the cap rate's high. So even though I'm paying a high basis, it's fine. Like that can, change. Rents go down. Um, hotels can go to zero, as we just saw. Um, offices can, people can break their leases. Um, a triple net can go dark and your basis is forever. So I think that's sort of the lens at which I look through things is that you want to have, you want to triangulate basis, uh, stabilized unlevered yield on cost, um, 
and then just whether it's good real estate or not, because sometimes you can have both of those things and it's just not good real estate. And, you know, do you think supply demand is good for, you know, do you think there's going to be too ton of supply, supply demand imbalance? So you have to, and that factors into what you think you can, your unlevered yield on cost can be. So it's really kind of triangulating those things um, to, to, to underwrite effectively. How much do you focus on, I know you, you, you just alluded to unlevered yield on cost. Do you factor in any, you know, like leveraged yield or is it, or is it always unlevered, you know, cash on cash type returns and that's how you judge investment options? So I currently, I don't think I ever got into what my day job is. So I am the uh, director of acquisitions uh, and asset management for a family office. And we have a long-term horizon. So we really look at a 10-year cash on cash return, levered cash on cash return. But the first cut, I just do unlevered because it's easy to do the math. Um, Though the formula for doing cash on cash returns, uh, you should memorize and it's pretty easy and you can do it in your head. It's the cap rate plus the, the inverse of the uh, the inverse of the cap rate times the cost of debt or the cap rate minus cost of debt. So you can calculate your cash on cash using that. Um, but unlevered is the first cut, but then everything I underwrite is 10 year uh, levered cash on cash. Got it. And working at a family office, investing for a family office, um, you know, long-term time horizon, like you said, what are, what are the deals um, that 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 you structure in terms of using cash versus using debt and then the dialogue that you have between you know should i use cash should i use debt how much of each should i use and 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 you know the reason i ask this question is because money's cheap now um and so that you know you can kind of put on your john malone cowboy hat and and (laughs) and just lever up right and just and just go to town but how how do you think about that from a allocation perspective like when do i use cash versus how much debt do I use? So I think it depends on what your job is. If your job and how you're incentivized and how you're paid. If you're incentivized and paid by achieving IR hurdles, you should lever as much as you can um, and really try to sell something, execute your business plan and sell out as fast as you can. Um, If you are paid on whole dollar profit, you should put in more equity, longer time horizon, you know, hit stabilization and then just click coupons. So let me just caveat that. It's really important to answer these questions through the lines of what is your capital and who, how are you incentivized? Um, for us, I think it's really about safety. And I would first, like, you want to make sure that if something goes wrong, you're going to be fine. And like, we, we hear a lot, you get in trouble if you've, if you've personally guaranteed debt or if you're, and you're over levered and things go sideways. If you're 50% levered, it's really hard for something to go really wrong. Like you can have dead money, like that's that can happen, but you're not gonna lose your shirt. And if you're 85% levered, like you can lose, miss by a little bit and still lose your shirt. So I think it just provides you the ability to sleep at night. And for us, like we're not as fo- much focused on what's the immediate cash return year one. It's what can we think we, this property can do over the course of 10 years. So, you know, we're willing to put in more equity if we think that we're going to um, hit our cash flow hurdles over 10 years. And that means we don't do as many deals as I think we should, I, I would like to do. But at the end of the day, like it's not always my call. Um, but I think if I had third party equity that and I was getting incentivized on IRR, then yeah, I'd be more aggressive with debt right now because why wouldn't you? There's a lot of non-recourse debt out there. There's a lot of, 
you know, pref you can get, there's a lot of retail money you can raise that, you know, there's no recourse. You mentioned you're not doing as many deals as maybe you would, you would want to given if you, let's say, didn't have certain constraints that you have now. How many deals do you see? Uh, maybe a year is too long of a time frame, but how many deals do you see a week, a month? Um, and, you know, how many do you accept on average per, let's say, sure, per like so, 100 deals that you look at? Yeah. So we're in a very, we're based in the Atlantic and we do, we're focused on those core geographies and anything near sort of the big hubs. So if something's in one of the gateway cities in our markets, like it's just, we're not going to be competitive. I mean, the cap rates are so low. You have to have, you have to have so much scale to make numbers work and not even just on the debt side. Like, you know, if you have a billion dollar fund, you have a locked in insurance portfolio on there and adding one more property to it is much cheaper than I can get for us on our smaller portfolio. You know, like you can hire better tax consultants than I can to go appeal the assessments. Um, you can get national buying on your R&M materials. You know, you can negotiate a better deal with your property management firm than I probably can. So it's just hard to compete there. And especially when the market's hot like this, it, it, it was different, you know, when I first started, because you could take a view in some of these cities on where rents were going to go and be competitive. Because if you were more bullish than somebody else, like we at one of my firms, we missed out on San Francisco, the entirety of the 2010s, just because we, you had to believe like, you know, five, 6% rent growth for five plus years to, for deals to work. And we just weren't willing to do that. So if you were an individual investor or a syndicator, you could, and you believed in that, you could be competitive. And now everyone has to make those same assumptions. And there's so much money in there that, you know, Black, uh, Blackstone REIT, Starwood REIT, they're all, they're doing that. And they're underwriting deals with four and a half exit caps five years out to make the numbers work. So it's just really hard for, smaller investors like us to be competitive there where we do have an edge in markets that are less institutional and where there's maybe less liquidity and so you know there's not that many deals in those markets that come out um every year like there's maybe half a dozen um at a scale that we want to buy and you know hopefully we buy one or two of those a year and but in terms of looking at it, i look at every deal that comes out in the atlantic for the most part uh, even though we're not going to do it um, because, you know, part of our business is, that we're trying to build out is maybe raising third-party equity um, to do some deals with different return profiles. Um, so it's important to have those relationships with the brokers for if that happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's really finding a needle in a haystack out there, it's particularly if you're in um, multi and industrial, which are sort of the most, most of the stuff that we've done. We also have a little bit of hospitalities too, but even in hospitality, there's a ton of dry powder. Uh, looking for distress and uh, there isn't really distress. You brought up a uh, good point in, in scale advantages and kind of picking your spots and, 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 and knowing where, where you can be competitive because there's companies like Blackstone that are buying pretty much every single, seems like single family rental home out there on the market. And multifamily um, property. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and multifamily properties. Are you seeing in your circle or maybe in your network a um, just a lower hurdle rate for returns for some investors where, you know, again, and, 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 and maybe you can define kind of cap rate for those that are listening. Um, are, like, are you seeing a tendency for real estate investors to accept lower and lower cap rates in the face of kind of this increased competition and this increased buying pressure? Yeah, no, I have. And, and again, it's important to differentiate between capital source. Um, if you're so, so 
institutional capital is allocating to a Blackstone, not the REITs, the opportunity funds or the core funds, um, Starwood, Lone Star, whomever, because they want they want allocations to real estate. What they, they don't want, you know, if you're a pension fund and you're saying you give someone $100 million, you don't want that $100 million to be in cash for five years until they find a good deal. You have annual obligation uh, obligations on, and returns that you have to meet so that you want that money out the door. And that means you got to go do deals. And so people have been willing to accept lower and lower cap rates and lower and lower cash returns, and they've been bailed out by cap rate compression. So, you know, I've seen a bunch of deals where people bought in 15, 16, 17, NOI went nowhere, um, but they bought at a, you know, 5.75 cap, they're selling at a four and they're making a lot of money. And I mean, that money's still green. Like, I don't begrudge them for that at all. Like, spends just as good as money uh, on a value add deal where you hit all your numbers. Right. But I mean, that's, is that repeatable? I don't know. Um, do you have to make some interesting assumptions with the rent growth and, uh, you know, be pretty conservative, be, be pretty conservative that you're not going to get tax reassessed at these new values? Like, yeah, you do. And it doesn't mean it can't work. Like I, I'm, there's a lot of deals out there that I wouldn't do that are going to work and make a lot of money, but you know, I just don't think the risk reward is there. Um, but that said, like, you have to think about my, one of my old bosses would say, you have to think about capital flows and, you know, markets are all time highs, all the sovereigns, all the pension funds are now over allocated equities. They have to rebalance their portfolio and get into alts or real assets. And, you know, like think about what it means if, you know, Norges has to reallocate 200 basis points to real estate, like how many billions of dollars of equity that is. And then with debt on top of it, how many billions of dollars of real estate they have to buy? Like Blackstone raises $16 billion op fund. They have to buy $70, million, $70 billion of real estate. And that's just one fund at one company. You know, it's, there's just so much cash out there looking for any type of yield um, that, you know, people are looking and saying, if I can buy a three and a half cap in, in Austin right now, like I think rent, gro rent growth is going to be good and my spread to my debt is still all right. So I'm going to do it. You had a tweet uh, a while ago and uh, I, I, I thought it was great because I think it's one of those, one of those tweets again, that, that kind of crosses the asset classes here. Um, and you said, good thing to ask when looking at an asset is who is selling this to me? Are they smart? Are they divesting for a structural reason? So walk us through kind of those three questions from your, your vantage point as real estate investor. And then, and then maybe, you know, just, just, just take us through why these three questions apply to any asset investment, whether that's real estate stocks or, you know, alts. Sure. Yeah. And I, I, I frame that question about real estate, but I also think it applies, it does apply to stocks, especially with some of these fat companies. Um, and we can kind of talk about that. Um, so I think you got to know who's selling it to you and what their story is, because that's a real, that's, it can be a very important source of alpha. If someone's selling because they're, it's something the family's owned for a while, they're getting divorced and they need cash like that. And for, that can tell you, that tells you something about what the pricing might be. Um, if they're a forced seller for any reason, it tells you what the pricing might be. If it's, you know, an operator who is very sharp and known for squeezing all the juice out of an asset, that tells you something too. And what I meant by, are they divesting for a structural reason? You know, it's good. It's okay to buy from smart people uh, if they have a structural reason that they have to sell. And that means people who are coming up on fund life issues, people who are trying to return capital for a structural reason in their operating agreements. Um, so essentially, like if you're buying from a private equity firm that is at the end of the life cycle of the fund that they've invested in this asset, like that can be good. Um, 
that, that can be a, you know, that can be a very, you know, that can be a signal for return. Uh, if you're buying from a REIT that's selling because they want to, you know, divest from certain markets for whatever reason in trying to, you know, tell a narrative to the public market. So that can also be uh, a signal. There's a bunch of real estate folks on uh, on Twitter who've made quite a bit of money buying from uh, the big multifamily REITs as they've, uh, you know, changed their views on markets over the years. So buying from somebody smart's okay if there's a structural reason for it. If it's if there's not, and then you got to kind of got to beware. Um, and that's, you know, if you're, if I'm buying, some, there's a couple uh, real estate in, institutions that are active in my markets that like, I just won't buy from, because I know that the rent roll is going to not always be right. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of deferred maintenance bombs in there that you're not going to be able to find until you own the asset. And, you know, they're going to be just hidden little gems for you to find in some of the lease agreements that are going to be artificially high or folks are going to have hidden concessions or stuff like that. And so a lot of times, like, I, I just don't really want to buy from them um, for those reasons. And I think they're very smart and they generate really good returns, but, you know, that's, that's for somebody else to, uh, uh, to take on. You mentioned SPACs and I, I think, I think we should just use this as a, as a time to drive home the importance of divesting for structural reasons. And I'm going to, I'm going to frame this in, in, in kind of two ways. In, in, in one way, there is um, the SPAC whole earth brands ticker F R E E. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think this is the company, but uh, my buddy, Matt Sweeney over at laughing water capital. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the story went that there was some like billionaire uh, that, that owned a bunch of stock. Maybe it was even like a chairman or something of the company. It was Ron, it was Ron, it was Ron Perlman. Yeah, exactly. And actually you might know the story better than I, but uh, he had some personal issues, some, you know, some, some, some liquidation issues and he ended up, you know, selling a bunch of his shares. And, and that's like, that's like the good example, right? Structurally divesting from um, what could be a good asset for non-fundamental reasons. And then on the flip side, you have someone like Chamath that sells all of these companies via SPAC, uh, whether it's Clover Health, Metro Mile, uh, Virgin, um, or uh, there was another one. Um, I don't know. There's, there's, there's been so many good ones, but space was the first one. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you've, you, you know, you've got that as the other side. So, so kind of walk us through how you can just ask yourself this basic assumption, and then, and then try to avoid these bombs in the market, like a Clover Health or a Metro Mile. Sure. So, and caveat this, like, I am surely a public equity punter, and I, I don't know anything that I'm talking about, but this is just basic concept you can apply to anything. So with some of these specs, there was one in particular that, you know, I was reading the, the docs about, it was real estate adjacent-ish, um, and a bunch of folks I know on Twitter, I think are long it, so I, I'm not going to na- say the name, but the story behind it was it was owned by a you know, ostensibly a family office and they were selling it to the SPAC and this business did, you know, a ton of EBITDA, like tens of millions of dollars a year of EBITDA on a very low invested capital basis. And I don't know anything about the business, but I just know that if a family office, which has a longer term time horizon by definition than a private equity fund or a hedge fund, wants to sell something generating tens of millions of dollars in free cash flow, um, there's probably that I don't know if that's the trade I want to be on the other side of because you think about it family office doesn't have external capital they're not generating fees if you have something that's dumping a 
bunch of cash into your account every year, that covers a lot of overhead. Yeah. And if you want to get rid of that for some reason, even if it's a crazy sale price, you know, you're paying taxes, you're paying bankers, you're paying all those. There's a lot of leakage there. That just would, to me, signal something might not be, you know, something might be rotten in Denmark. Um, and, you know, that stock has not done great. It could do fantastic moving forward. I, I'm, again, like, I'm not saying anything about the quality of the underlying business, but I think it's just something you need to be aware of. Like, that's, that's, uh, that would be something I would want to uh, avoid. So as a stock market punter, as, as you kind of self, self-describe, where do you like to, uh, you know, pitch your, pitch your tenant public markets? Like what, what, uh, what gets you excited in stocks as opposed to uh, real estate? Cause I actually, I actually want to go into a conversation about capital allocation from like, you know, let's call it a big sure. macro level, but, but, but we can start with what gets you excited in public markets. Sure. So when I was working um, in private equity, I didn't do anything in the public markets just because I didn't have time. I outsourced everything. Um, And then even my first couple of years of being on my own, I wasn't really that active in it. And part of it was, I think, a little bit of laziness. I just, I said, you know what, this is a too hard pile. I'm competing against smart people. Like I just need to not do this. And it was really, you know, it's really only been in the last handful of years where I realized that the underwriting you use on real estate private assets can be valuable in the public market. So I, I exclusively do real estate stuff. And again, at a very small level, it's a small part of my net worth. Like my day job is real estate. My income comes from real estate. Majority of my net worth is real estate. But, uh, you know, especially during COVID where we weren't for structural reasons able to buy real estate for like six months, like what are we going to do? Like not do anything like you have, there's, you know, there's always something to do. You got to figure out what it is. doesn't mean you have to do it, but it's important, I think, to just constantly be turning over rocks. And so I was excited because I think there was a lot of overreaction to uh, certain things, especially in the hotel space, um, but even just in, in multifamily as well. Like you could have bought really high quality multifamily REITs at really attractive implied cap rates. And those assets are by and large much lower leverage than the private markets. They're managed by better folks than private deals for the most part. Um, and you have daily liquidity. And so I think that that's really when I like became more active. And, um, you know, I made a couple of pretty large, at least for, for me and my little punter account <laughs> trades that have worked out pretty well. And it was solely based on knowing the underlying real estate and seeing that there was a disconnect between the value of the real estate in the private market and what the private market was valuing it at. Valuing it at. Yeah. I mean, your little punter account, I think you call it the Polo Tactical Portfolio. <laughs> returned, Polo Tac uh, Ops. <laughs> yeah. Polo Tac Ops. Uh, it returned almost 80%. I mean, that's not, I mean, even for a, even for a little punter portfolio, I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty darn good. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. It's no, it's just my retirement account that I used to, as I said, get a little gamble out. So I don't do stupid stuff elsewhere. Um, you know, a little, a little pressure release, but yeah, I mean, the way I handle that account is it was in SPY until I find something to do. And then it's in the thing I, I found to do until it hits fair value and then it's back in SPY until I find something to do. And it's, I'm not going to find 10 good ideas just because it's not my day job. And it's again, not a significant, that's, well, it's becoming a little bit more significant because it's actually done. Okay. A uh, part of my net worth. So I'm willing to, you know, be like Mike Mitchell level of committed to a single name. 
um, which I am at this point um, in that part of the in that part of my uh, portfolio. And you know, I, I'm I'm happy with that for now. I'm, I'm willing to you know be that convicted into one thing because it fits in with my overall broader balance sheet. I was talking to my buddy, and I don't know, have you connected with uh, Jason Greenwald? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So I was talking to Jason Great guy. about, but yeah, awesome dude. Uh, also, um, I, I, I got to meet him. Um, he actually came up to Annapolis, where I live, and uh, we got, we got nice. some yeah, Mission he, Barbecue. He, 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 got to pick his brain awesome. for like an hour. Awesome dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I was I was asking him about his allocation process because he runs, you know, for all intents and purposes, kind of his own internal capital. We'll call it, you know, his own family office. And um, I just I just really like the idea of kind of looking at allocation as, you know, what are the opportunities in the public markets versus what can I buy in the private real estate markets? And at the end of the day, you know, for him, he kind of takes this like macro perspective where it's like, okay, like can I get returns that are like real estate? in public markets and 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 if i can then maybe i invest there or if i can't then maybe i look at real estate so as as this you know i and 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 i don't know you know kind of the capacity you have in your family office to kind of make these broad macro decisions but as you think maybe from a personal balance sheet perspective have you thought more as you know let's call it this little polo tack ops portfolio grows do you find yourself thinking at that macro level, like what are the returns I could get here versus just real estate? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. It's one I thought a lot more about, especially the past two years. And I think, you know, for me as an individual investor and then for us as a family office, there are benefits to real estate beyond just sort of the nominal returns because of the various tax advantages that real estate offers. Um, And of course the fact that we need to like cover overhead and, uh, you know, pay me. And so generating uh, cash flow from from real estate helps do that as opposed to, you know, the whatever small, smaller dividend yield on SPY or whatever it is. Um, but I do think that there are times to be, you want to be in, want to be in private real estate. There's times you want to be in public real estate. And I think we've seen sort of a regime shift a couple of times in the last two years. And, you know, I, I don't totally know where we are now, but I know that it's really hard to find real estate in the private markets that works and stuff that works is gonna be funky and hairy. It's gonna involve, you know, trying to like take over an asset through the debt or some significant repositioning play uh, or something like that. It's, you know, buying just sort of like a set it and forget it core deal, like the returns just aren't gonna be there. So I think the public markets have been more interesting. than than privates, I think, for most of the last little while. I don't have as, you know, I'm not the head of the office, so I don't make those calls. I I have an input on it, but I know on my personal balance sheet, like I put in more in equities um, the last two years than I I have in real estate for my personal portfolio. And, you know, even then I did most of it through, I outsourced it um, because I, I wanted to, I took a view on, you know, what was happening with uh, the market last March where I was like, all right, we're down whatever, 35% to get back to where we were previously. If it takes five years. It's like a 13% annual return. And I was like, I can take 13, like I'll take 13 for the rest of my, if we got, if I could take 13 for the rest of my life, I would take it. Um, and so I have a very good friend who you should have on. He, uh, runs a firm. Uh, I'll, I'll give you his name offline. So I don't dox myself, but awesome. he's, uh, 
yeah, he, he, him and his partner have put up serious returns, um, mostly in growth, in, in growth stuff. And I didn't have any allocation of that. So I put a bunch of money in, I had a, I had a deal fee um, that closed in February last year. I rolled that almost entirely into their growth fund. And that has been, I made the most money off of that. Awesome. I didn't have almost anything else the last two years. Yeah, that's 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 terrific. And definitely uh definitely give me give me their name because I, I love kind yeah. of the more growthy aspect of aspect of of things. Um but you you you've mentioned Twitter r- repeatedly in this podcast, and it's you know the reason that you and I are talking today. It's because I, um, I have brain damage. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk uh talk to us about the benefits of Twitter. I mean, I know there's there's good and bad, and it's and it's interesting whenever I ask people like, hey, what's your experience with Twitter? They're like, ah, oh, it's great and it's terrible at the same time. But yeah. um, you know, from t- talk to me about real estate Twitter because I know I know financial Twitter and 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 the two sure. are almost like brother and sister Catholic schools sort of. But you know, kind of talk to me about the vibe on real estate Twitter and kind of who are the must follows and all that stuff. Sure. So I would say my experience with Twitter overall has been great. Like I've met you know of my handful of closest friends now. Like, two of them are from Twitter. And, you know, one of them gave a speech at my wedding. Um, so for, <laughs> for, for all of that, like, <laughs> yeah, like, like, so Twitter can never be anything but a net positive in my life. Uh, you know, but I think there are the downsides, which I'm sure other people have talked about. So we don't need to get into that. But I think Twitter has been great because it, it exposes a bunch of different niches. And so people can learn things that you really wouldn't otherwise, unless you somehow got exposed to this certain thing. So for instance, there's a guy, uh, Bobby Fijan on Twitter, who gets into floor plans. And unless you were in new development, you know, you probably didn't know about the floor plan detail, the way he explains it. And he shows how two units that are the same size, that are both one bedrooms, can get markedly different rents based on different things you can do in your floor planning and how you can add alpha that way. So like, that's really cool, right? And there's a bunch of, there's a gazillion different examples of folks who are in, you know, uh, strip malls, uh, you know, strip mall guys, you know, really smart uh, in that asset class. Um, and I've learned a lot from him. I actually tried to get mall. the, I actually tried to get the strip mall guy on here and he's not, he wouldn't do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. Um, you know, there's, there's a ton of guys. I don't want to, I, I feel bad naming names because I don't want to leave anybody out, but it's been a really great resource. The one thing I would say is that you have to be aware if you're coming in and, and sort of following folks because it, it comes down, I talked about incentives a lot and it's like, what are people's incentives here? And the one issue I have with Twitter is that in some cases, it's almost as if people act, they, they, I don't think they're honest about the risks they're taking in, a, in some of these asset classes and in some of these deals. And, you know, again, like I don't begrudge people for making money, like in, you know, deals that I would not do are very successful all the time. But I think you got to be honest about what risks you're taking and, you know, buying multifamily, like if you're buying multifamily or doing 1031 exchanges, like you haven't solved investing, like that's been around for a long time, like (laughs) buying Austin real estate's been around for a long time. And just because the returns have been really good, doesn't mean they're going to be moving forward. I mean, at my first job in my first job doing investor playing community development, we looked every single deal we looked at or bought was from a developer went broke. And, you know, at my first institutional job, I was asset managing a portfolio of a couple thousand units in Dallas and Houston, uh, and one in Austin, 
and guess what? Rents went down and the deal, like we were in a deal for the entire fund life and made a four IRR, you know, for 11 years. So, you know, buying in those markets, like you just got to be honest about the risk you're taking. If you're making a bet on the beta of a market, like that is totally fine. If, as long as you're upfront about it, you know, and if people want exposure to that beta, like that's great. And it's a good service that you're providing, but to say like, I'm, I'm doing some sort of value add, or I'm, you know, providing some sort of alpha when really it's just beta, like that's what I kind of have an issue with. And again, I don't begrudge people for making money and it's not, you know, you're, people can do, they're not doing anything wrong. Um, but I just think if you're a retail investor coming in and you've got 50 grand and you're saying, Hey, I want to get into a private deal. Like you need to put that money. If you want allocation of real estate, you need to put that money to read, you know, and the tax savings are not worth the illiquidity. They're not worth the fees, you know, if you're putting in that amount of money. And if, if you're, it's different, if you're a high net worth investor and you're like, I have a million dollars, I have a view on on Phoenix, I want allocation to Phoenix real estate. Like that's a completely different story. But for those who are just getting on FinTwit and who are younger, like I just want to be very clear about that, that you got to be aware of the risks people are taking in their deals. When you see new investors enter the markets, let's say regardless of cycles, right? Because this is probably intracycle problems. What are the what are the pockets um, of deals or pockets of, of kind of underwriting where their assumptions are the most incorrect or, or, or kind of tend to be the most incorrect? So I guess a better way of asking that is as a new real estate investor or as a real estate investor, where would someone likely make the biggest assumption mistake? Uh, I would say the biggest assumption mistake, I think, is what's your economic occupancy? <laughs> Um, like how much rent are you actually collecting? Because um, I think people underestimate how long turnover is and how that can impact your your uh, economic occupancy and then also bad debt collection. The other one is R&M, payroll. Well, I guess I'm going to name every expense line item. <laughs> um, but we've seen, you know, insurance used to be able to underwrite a garden deal for 250 a unit. It's been up to 500 now you know, in the last three years, like it's come down a little bit. Um, R&M, you know, materials, we don't need to get into that. Everyone knows. And then payroll too. Like you used to have, I mean, when I started, we were like $1,100 a unit in payroll for like a standard 200 unit garden complex. Now we're, I think I'm underwriting 1650 for the deal that I submitted an offer on today. So I think people have to be honest about what margins older properties can do, for, especially older properties, what, what they can do. If you're underwriting an 80s vintage or 90s vintage garden complex at like a 67% NOI margin, like that's, I don't, I, I think that's aggressive. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'm really concerned about is taxes and especially a lot of municipalities are hurting and we're seeing large property tax increases across across the board. And that's really an unknown and that can eat up a ton of your profits. If you're in New York, I mean, good guy guarantee can tell you like how, how much property taxes is a percentage of the rent you take in. And we're seeing that in other markets too. Texas, Florida are both having really aggressive property tax increases and there are counties in the markets we're in where you will get spot assessed by a school district. And it's the one lever they really have now to raise revenue. And so if folks are telling me they're buying a 4-1 cat, like this is sort of my heuristic for a private deal. It ask, ask the sponsor what the tax adjusted cap rate is. And if they don't know, that means they haven't done a tax projection and you shouldn't do the deal. Like that's, 
that that's that's my number one thing I tell people. Um, and be surprised at how often sponsors aren't. And the last thing I'll say is I've just seen more so than any assumptions, just the amount of first time sponsors and syndicators who are taking down like 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar deals is kind of startling. And again, doesn't mean they won't make money. Like I, 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 I don't, I'm not trying to dunk on anybody, um, but it's just, it's really hard to run real estate. And the seeing that makes me a little bit wary um, because you know, I, I bricked my first 16 unit. And if you are going to a 200 unit, it's much harder than that. I can tell you. Um, but it's all passive, right? That's what I'm told on Twitter. It's all passive. I, while we're on this call, I literally got a text message saying water is shut off at our prop, our property because of a water main break. <laughs> Ser- I'm, water main break in a unit at this property pretty significant water damage we're going to get it shut off <laughs> likely one person to be displaced maybe more fd and municipal throwing route like while i'm on this call it's not passing. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's terrible actually i feel i feel i feel bad um <laughs> well a good thing we're kind of you know closing up closing up shop here no um, no no that's <laughs> I've got I've got a couple questions around opportunities that 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 you're seeing now and and I want to frame this in a way of when you when you wake up you know what are what are, what are some deals what are some structured um, you know deals that 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 you have on your radar that are getting you excited whether it's in multifamily you mentioned hospitality like what are what are some things that excite you right now Yeah so I I'm working on something um, in hospitality that's been long gestating. I think we first started looking at it in July and we'll see if it, we, we ever actually get it done. Um, but it's with another guy from Twitter and we're looking at uh, getting into a hospitality asset through the debt. And that's just like a one-off. It's through a relationship with a, a lender that I use. And they said, we have a problem asset. Can you help us? That I think is pretty interesting. Um, I really kind of like, I think now though, it's really hard to, unless you have a specialized skill set in multi-year industrial, like if you're a, you know, industrial developer um, who can sort of, you have a model that works, that's one thing, but like for me going into industrial where we've done one-offs, but mm-hmm. we don't have a platform, it's a lot harder. Um, but the things I think are kind of interesting now is like, I almost like boutique off, like really high-end boutique office, like smaller floor plates, really highly amenitized, hmm. no columns, large elevator banks, a lot of outdoor space and amenities for employees. I think those are really interesting. And if you look, I mean, I'm in, I'm in New York, but if you look around, I mean, high-end space is leasing and it's leasing at really high rates. You know, one Vanderbilt is almost fully leased and that is an enormous project. And the rates they're getting on the top floors for the smaller floor plates are incredible. I think they're like hundreds of dollars a square foot. Um, you know, look at all the space that's been taken up at Hudson Yards. Uh, or on the west side, or like Google's bought on the west side, um, it's it's really something. And Facebook's took take, took all of I think Farley Plaza uh, for the Vornado space. So good space is getting leased. And I think if there's an opportunity for smaller buildings um, to do really cool projects there. There's some in Brooklyn that are really. I, I tweeted this a while back, and you know people who do more deals in New York uh, sent sent some replies to me that were really really cool. Um, you know, for smaller financial firms, accounting firms law offices, family offices. Um, I think that's an interesting space to be in. You know, 
I, I think, you know, the, the secular demand for build to rent and for moldier is there. Like we, we, we underbuilt houses for a decade. Um, I, my first job was in 2012. We were talking about how we were underbuilding houses and, you know, we did that for eight, eight, nine more years. Um, you know, the, the one thing we're seeing in my market specifically, which I think is indicative uh, more broadly nationally is, you know, we used to have a rent ceiling of about 1500 bucks a month. Cause that was what a $200,000 house cost in a mortgage, you know, mm -hmm. plus or minus. And we're now getting $1,700 on some on renovated units in some of our properties because the median home price in our county has gone over $300,000. And it's really priced people out of entry-level homes. And so I think people, you know, this isn't a unique insight, but people are going to be renting because they they're going to be renting by choice or renting by necessity because they can't afford a down payment because um, homes have ripped so much. So I, I think that's there, but unless you have a really differentiated strategy, it's going to be hard to generate alpha outside of the market beta. But again, those returns may be really strong. Like, so mm -hmm. you know, if rents keep going up 15% a year, you're going to do, you know, if you're paid three cap, you're still going to make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, that's just not necessarily a bet that, you know, my, my firm is is able or willing to make but doesn't mean it's not something that won't, won't make money i'm gonna ask you about redfin because i ask all my real estate friends about redfin uh i've done, sure. I've done some i've done some work on the company big fan of glenn kelman um and if and if you know gun to my head you had to tell me hey in in five to ten years how are most people going to transact on real estate are they going to use a broker or an agent that's going to take, you know, 6% off the top, or are they going to do some sort of transaction through an, an online marketplace where the fees are a lot less? And, you know, my bet would be the latter. I, and, and, and I think um, Redfin's vision is more aligned to where I think that space ends up. But again, this is, some of this is, is part chauffeur's knowledge. So from, <laughs> from, from your side of the table, like how how legitimate is that potential future? Like from one perspective, there's always going to be those deals, those multi-million deals where you want an agent, you want someone to talk to, you want someone to help structure a deal. But for the average median home, like maybe, maybe it's a different story. So walk me through how you think about Redfin's model and that whole future. So I think there's it's important to make a differentiation. Well, first of all, let me just say like I'm not in residential so this is these are all just like my opinions they're not you know it, this isn't anything that i'm particularly an expert in but i think you know we talk about moats a lot right and people always want to invest in a company that has a moat and they talk about we delight our customers we you know we we have a great experience for our customers the moatiest companies are companies that are terrible and everybody hates but don't but stay with them Yep. And when I think about that, I think of stuff like CoStar, where I think almost everyone complains about it, but everyone uses it every day. And then I think of like title agents, which again, everyone complains about it, but I haven't seen, you know, blockchain disintermediate title yet. And people complain about realtors, but people have been saying that realtors are going away forever. And, you know, here Compass is saying it's a tech company and really it's just a lower cost of capital to roll up more brokerages. So I think... I think it's the largest asset for the vast majority of folks. And mm -hmm. anytime you're dealing with that, you want to talk to a person. Whether Are there ways that the process can be streamlined? Of course. And does the average home buyer have a lot more information now because of Zillow, because of Redfin um, in New York as a street easy? Absolutely. And that's a great thing. 
Um, the I, I think realtors are providing a service emotionally almost as much as they are financially for people. And if you don't do it every day, even if you're very if you're very financially sophisticated, you know, it's it having a broker really helps. Like I work in real estate. I mean, not residential, albeit, but like if we buy a house, like I'm using a broker. Like I've used a broker on every on the homes I on the homes I bought. Um, mm. You know, I, I think is there going to be fee compression? Sure. Like six percent is crazy. Like like just it's legitimately crazy but are you going to see the complete displacement of real estate agents I, I, I don't see that but I do see tech being additive to it I think when you try to completely disintermediate the human to human element I don't I don't see that but again I, I'm, I'm this is, I could be totally wrong but that's sort of my, my view on it and do you think maybe the the lack of full disintermediation is due to the low frequency of transactions because maybe you only buy like a home, you know, let's call it your forever home. Like maybe you only do that two to four times at the most during your lifetime. Again, this is like, I have no data to back this up, but like, let's just say hypothetically, like you for your family are going to buy maybe two to four homes in your lifetime. And is that frequency enough for you to kind of stomach that fee and, and, and then justifying that fee because you're interacting with someone and it's a high dollar ticket item and it's something you're not going to do as much. And there's almost that reflexive feedback loop where because it's so low frequency, you accept a lot of things. And then because those things get accepted, it kind of, you know, reinforces itself. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. And I think it's also too, that people, if you don't negotiate all the time, like, would you know how to, how to actually submit an offer on like with the proper paperwork? Like, I don't think I would like in New York, like, you know, like, um, I mean, some, that sounds bad. I probably shouldn't admit that, but like, it's all right. You're, you know, you're anonymous like, on Twitter. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, do you know, but do you know all the inspections you need to do? Do you know how to work with a mortgage lender? Do you know how to deal with a title company? Do you know how to make sure that you're not, you know, that they haven't been, you know, putting, you know, terrible HVAC equipment behind the wall. Um, how do you know all these things? And a broker can help you with that. And I kind of, I kind of have a view on brokerage, commercial, residential, whatever, that like average brokers destroy value. Good brokers are neutral and then great brokers are worth multiples of what you pay them. And, you know, I don't know how you find a good broker, a great broker, but, you know, it's sometimes hard to tell, but I think that's sort of the, that's sort of the, what I've seen. And to your point too, I think if it's your largest asset, like, do you want to do it yourself? If you've not, that's not your profession. Right. I mean, like, are you going to, you know, give yourself braces? Like, I don't, you only get braces once too. Like, (laughs) you want to save the 12 grand? Like, I don't know. I don't, mean to be flip. I, don't, I don't mean yeah, I don't mean I don't mean to be flipped, but seriously. No, but I mean it's 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 a good point. It's like why and, and again, maybe maybe just go even more crude, right? It's like, why don't you just let the adults kind of handle it if you're not gonna do it that often, right? And it's and like the risk, again, going back to like the 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 high dollars, like the risk of you doing something wrong, whether on accident, um, you know, or regardless, is like that could be tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars since you're working in sure and i I think there's something there's something brokerage are doing that i think are really interesting and really helpful to the consumer and i think there's going to be more of that where they are saying you know we have a view or we have the data showing that if you upgrade your kitchen you'll get 
you know, $50,000 more and we'll front you the money to do it. And we'll take it out of the, out of the sale price and where everybody kind of wins. And I think that stuff is really interesting. I think you're going to see more of that. And I think, you know, companies that have the data to show over, you know, over a certain market to show, like, this is what happens. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, that, that is, I think, a very interesting use case for tech and the human element uh, working together to create a better outcome. Um, and it's different, I think, depending on what market you're in. Like, it's selling a condo in New York is a lot different than selling, you know, a ranch home in Florida um, mm -hmm. than it is selling a, you know, Malibu mansion. Like, so it's, it's really market dependent, um, but you are seeing that too. I think on the high end, a lot of concierge auctions for these sort of like one-on-one -on -one houses, which huh. that is, it's not Redfin in that you're like doing it completely online uh, with a click, but you know, it, I think, uh, um, you know, th there's, there've been quite a few like tens of millions of dollars valued houses that have been sold on concierge auctions. And that's, I think, an interesting thing that you're going to see more of too, because, you know, if you own a, you know, very unique house in a high-end area, the buyer very well may not be from your locale and how do you get the exposure nationwide? And so companies like Sirhant, where he's basically, you know, a marketing company um, with global reach, that can be incredibly valuable for those types of assets. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fascinating ideas at like the higher ends of the spectrum. Like I think I think you have you have a tendency to create probably better business models doing some more niche things in like the ultra high net um, real estate markets. But um, I mean, we'll see. Redfin is let's see where Redfin closed today, just for kicks and giggles. Um, down another almost seven percent. So they're like a three point seven billion dollar company. Um, and we'll see, we'll see. But let's uh, let's kind of shift to some some questions that I ask everybody. You know, before before we head out, it's been almost an hour and a half. So I you know appreciate you you taking the time. Um, the first question I want to ask is: Let's roll back the clock. Pink Polo Shorts gets his first start in real estate. Um, you had early success, but was there anything that you wish you would have done more of? Um, earlier, maybe it's stuff that you wish you would have cared about more from like a research process or a fundamental knowledge process, things you wouldn't have cared about as much today, like roll back the clock. What would you have done differently, if anything? So I don't even know uh, if the answer is that more than it is related to how I worked as a member of a team and member of an organization. And, you know, part of the reason why I'm out on my own is like, I'm not a great employee. I, I'm a little headstrong. I have, I, I voice my opinions um, and I'm not afraid to voice my opinions. Um, but I think I would have been really well served by trying to be, you know, more of a team player and, and fit in better and not try to sort of prove how smart I was all the time and try yeah. to actually just go, you know, take in my surroundings, learn from the folks I was working for and not try to like, you know, continue to prove points to people. I mean, you know, someone, someone once told me that you can't keep living, you can't live your life just constantly trying to prove points to everybody. Um, it's just not healthy. And Twitter is like challenge really accepted. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> but you know, it's, I, I think you, whatever situation, I wish I would have just not been in as, in as much of a rush to try to like, 
be the man, be on my own and do yeah. my own thing and, and wish I would have realized how lucky I was to be where I was and try to absorb more and, you know, be more open to other folks' opinions and not think that I was, you know, always right. And I think yeah. the fact that I went on my own and did terribly on my first deal sort of that was I'm kind of in a weird way glad that happened because it kind of realized like oh you're actually not that smart um you need to really work at this yeah and uh you know that would have been um so, so that really I think that's my answer the other one of course is like buy all the sunbelt mostly you can buy but you know can't do that anymore or <laughs> too late for that if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present who would it be and why You know, I, I think, you know, it's, it's tempting to say any number of, of real estate names. And, you know, I think that would be, there's a lot that would be really interesting there, but I would probably say Kirk Kerkorian. Um, we'll I read The Gambler. Hold on. Who is that? Kirk? Kerkorian. Kerkorian. Okay. Yeah. There's a book about him that came out a couple of years ago called The Gambler. And he basically helped build the modern Las Vegas. He traded, you know, MGM a bunch of times at one point, he owed a huge chunk of Chrysler was worth, you know, at the peak, like $18 billion. But he, he just, his ability to put on risk and stomach it, I, I think was really something. And then his ability to create uh, value out of, and basically create a market. Like he basically was essential to the creation of Las Vegas as we know it today. Wow. Um, I think is, is really incredible. And I would highly recommend The Gambler as a read uh, for anyone listening. It's, it's really entertaining. And he was a true one of one. Have you read um, Amarillo Slim? Have I have you read not, that one? No. Oh, okay. No, so if you, if, if you love like, you know, Rick Corcoran gambling and all that um, stories like that, you have to read Amarillo Slim. You have okay, to. One of my one of my good friends, Brad Hathaway, um, he actually mailed me the book, and I read it in like a day or two. It was so fun, and it's just, I think I think you're gonna love it. So, I will get that. I will. <laughs> awesome. All right, and then last question that I've got, uh, since you have a baseball background, and I'm a fan of baseball, who is the best player in the majors today? Mike Trout. Mike Trout. Okay, well, that was the wrong answer. I was looking for Juan Soto, I mean, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I mean Mike Trout. Um, well, I mean, I think this year, right now, maybe Shohei Otani, just because of the value on both sides of the ball. He's my favorite player to watch. Um, yeah. Sorry, Max Scherzer, but yeah, Mike Trout. I mean, it's. It's, it's, it's really sad that Mike Trout, who is probably maybe the best baseball player of all time or on track to be the best baseball player of all time, like look up his Twitter follow, followers versus like the six man for the Milwaukee Bucks. And it's, it just speaks to where baseball is and the collective consciousness, which is a little bit sad. And we're about to do a lockout. So it's, it, again, just breaks my heart that baseball continually tries to uh, uh, ruin itself. Well, I think Trout is just, I mean, I'm not going to say he's boring, but like, you know, he's just, he is who he is. Like he's consistent yeah. and there's no flash and that doesn't sell anything in baseball. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think he, he's like, he's big into the weather. Like, I think he's like a guest host on the weather channel sometimes. Well, that explains the Twitter following. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh man. Well, this is this has been this has been super fun. Um, I'm glad I'm glad we got to do this. I'm I'm excited to release it. I know that uh, FinTwit is going to enjoy this because as much as you are a real estate person, I think I think FinTwit claims claims you as one of one of us. <laughs> um for for one reason or another but uh well sorry about that (laughs) well no i think it's i think it's great so uh, once again you know thanks so much for taking an hour and a half of your day um this has been a great learning experience and i look forward to sharing it with the community yeah thanks a lot brandon i appreciate it now i gotta go fix this uh, water main break this episode is brought to you by ticker ticker ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you the individual investor Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.